Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called Thin Place, Deep Water. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 10th, 2016. Epiphany. The word comes from the Greek epiphania, meaning appearing or revealing. During this brief season between Advent and Lent, we leave mangers and swaddling clothes behind and turn to stories of shimmering revelation. Kings and stars, doves and voices, water, wine, transfiguration. In Celtic Christianity, epiphany stories are stories of thin places, places where the boundary between the mundane and the internal becomes permeable. God parts the curtain and we catch glimpses of his love, majesty, and power. Epiphany calls us to look beneath and beyond the ordinary surfaces of our world and discover the extraordinary, to look deeply at Jesus and see God. The problem? I have never discovered a portentous star in the east. I have never seen the spirit descend like a dove or heard a divine voice in the clouds. I have never watched water become wine or seen Jesus' clothes blaze white on a mountaintop. Though I have professed belief in the self-revealing God all my life, I have not experienced him in any of the ways the epiphany stories describe. As St. John puts it, I belong to a people who walk in darkness. My experience might be unique, but I doubt it. I don't know many 21st century Christians who bask in signs and wonders, who complain that God talks too much or butts into their lives too often. But I know plenty of believers who experience God as hidden and silent. These are faithful people who long for epiphany, not just for a season, but for lifetimes. So I stand at the edges of this week's Gospel reading, Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, and find myself afraid to leap. How shall I bridge the gap between an ancient voice and a modern silence? Heaven opened, a dove descended, God spoke. Really? I want to believe this. I do. But to accept the supernatural in scripture is to plunge into a sea of hard questions. If God spoke audibly in the past, why doesn't he do so now? If he does, why haven't I heard him? Is God angry at me? Has he retreated, changed, left? Or are the ancient stories of Epiphany figurative? Was the dove, in fact, just a dove, and the voice from heaven no more than a nicely timed windstorm? When we speak of epiphanies, are we really just trucking in metaphor? Perhaps God should be in scare quotes. I had a spiritual experience. I felt God. He spoke to me. Isn't it embarrassing nowadays to believe in miracles? According to Christian historian John Dominic Crossan, the baptism story was an acute embarrassment for the early church, too, but for reasons very different from our modern ones. What scandalized the gospel writers was not the miraculous, but the ordinary. Doves and voices, all well and good. But the Messiah placing himself under the tutelage of a rabble-rouser like John? God's incarnate son receiving a baptism of repentance? Perfect, untouchable Jesus? What was he doing in that murky water, aligning himself with the great unwashed? And why did God the Father choose that sordid moment to part the clouds and call his son beloved? I suppose every age has its signature difficulties with faith. When we're not busy flattening miracle into mirage, we're busy instead turning sacrament into scandal. After all, what's most incredulous about the story? That the Holy Spirit became a bird? That Jesus threw his reputation aside to get dunked alongside sinners? Or that God looked down at the very start of the son's ministry and called him beloved, well before Jesus had accomplished a thing worth praising? Let me ask the question differently. What do we find most impossible to believe for our own lives? 
that God appears by means so familiar we often miss him, that our baptisms bind us to all of humanity, not in theory but in the flesh, such that you and I are kin, responsible for each other in ways we fail too often to honor, or that we are God's beloved, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because our Father has spoken. Here's my real problem with Epiphany. I always, always have a choice, and most of the time I don't want it. I expect God's revelations to bowl me over. I expect the thin places to dominate my landscape such that I am left choiceless, powerless, sinless, freed of all doubts, and pulsing with faith. But no, God has not insulted humanity with so little agency. We get to choose. No matter how many times God shows up, I'm free to ignore him. No matter how often he calls me beloved, I can choose self-loathing instead. No matter how many times I remember my baptism, I'm capable of dredging out of the water the very sludge I first threw in. No matter how often I reaffirm my vow to seek and serve Christ in all persons, I am at liberty to reject you and walk away. The stories of Epiphany are stories of light, and yet quite often they end in shadow. The visitation of the Magi leads to the slaughter of the innocents. Jesus' baptism drives him directly into the wilderness of temptation and testing. Soon after he's transfigured, he dies. There is no indication anywhere in Scripture that revelation leads to happily ever afters. It is quite possible to stand on the hot white center of a thin place and see nothing but my own evil. Yet we speak so glibly of faith, revelation, and baptism, as if it's all easy, as if what matters most is whether we sprinkle or immerse, dunk babies or adults, as if lives aren't on the line. Until Christianity became a state-sanctioned religion in the 4th century AD, no convert received the sacrament of baptism lightly. He knew the stakes too well. To align oneself publicly with the despised and illegal religion was to court persecution, torture, and death. I don't know about you, but I find so much of this maddening. How much nicer it would be if the font were self-evidently holy. But no, the font is just tap water, river water, chlorine. The thin place is a neighborhood, a forest, a hilltop. The voice that might be God might also be wind, thunder, indigestion, or delusion. Is the baby divine? Or have we misread the star? Is this the very life and body of God's Son? Or is it a mere hunk of bread, a jug of wine? What I mean to say is that there is no magic. We practice epiphany. The challenge is always before us. Look again. Look harder. See freshly. Stand in the place that might possibly be thin. And regardless of how jaded you feel, cling to the possibility of surprise. Epiphany is deep water. You can't dip your toes in. You must take a breath and plunge. Yes, baptism promises new life, but it always kills before it resurrects. What reason for hope, then? What shall we hang on to in this uncertain season of light and shadow? New Testament scholar Marcus Borg suggests that Jesus himself is our thin place. He's the one who opens the barrier and shows us the God we long for. He's the one who stands in line with us at the water's edge, willing to immerse himself in shame, scandal, repentance, and pain, all so that we might hear the only voice that can tell us who we are and whose we are in this sacred season. Listen, we are God's own, God's children, God's pleasure. Even in the deepest water, we are the beloved. For books this week, we posted a review of David Brooks's book, The Road to Character. In The Road to Character, New York Times columnist David Brooks sets out to recover a moral vocabulary, a vocabulary that includes words considered obsolete and even distasteful in popular culture. Sin, 
renunciation, holiness, grace. He contrasts what he calls resume virtues, the virtues of academic and professional accomplishment we prize in the marketplace, with eulogy virtues, the virtues of kindness, humility, courage, and fortitude we hope others will remember us for after we die. Brooks argues that we live in a culture and a time so obsessed with resume virtues we've forgotten how to engage in the most important struggle of the human life, the moral struggle against sin. Brooks usefully defines sin as a disordered love, love prioritized in ways that harm and defeat us. If we love attention and popularity, for example, over loyalty and trustworthiness, we might spill a friend's secret at a party and do irreparable harm both to the friend and the friendship. But how do we engage in the struggle for virtue? How do we walk the road to character? Brooks believes we learn best by example, so he offers brief but compelling bios of historical figures who illustrate the eulogy virtues. Among them are St. Augustine, Francis Perkins, George Eliot, and Dwight Eisenhower. As he examines the lives and legacies of these people, he stresses that they were far from perfect. They are exemplary not for their sinlessness, but for their serious commitment to moral struggle. We can learn from them because they are willing to both face and fight their core sins. In contrast, Brooks notes, we live in the age of the selfie, an age that does little to encourage personal renunciation or struggle. Indeed, he admits that he's prone to shallowness and smug superficiality himself. Though Brooks is careful not to align himself publicly to any faith tradition, what he does with this book is recover a religious vocabulary for a secular world. The road to character is an antidote, grounded in deeply religious language, for the spiritual disease the author diagnoses first of all in himself. I wrote this book, he confesses, to save my soul. For movies, we reviewed Yangtze. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, especially when you're a little boy. This 82-minute documentary film from the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan follows the life of Ungyen Tenzin Jigme Lundrup, who at the age of four was recognized as a rebirth, reincarnation, or Yangtze, of a preeminent Tibetan Buddhist master. It begins with his enthronement before 10,000 people. After living with his parents for a few years, he entered a monastery to begin the long process of living into his calling, the religious knowledge, practices, and rituals, a nine-year-long nine course of philosophical study, English lessons, and advanced meditative practices. In addition to the strict training, he lives at least a semblance of a normal boyhood, watching cartoons, playing with Lego blocks, and playing basketball with his buddies. Oh, you must also meet Bhutan's queen mother, by age 18, he goes on a world tour. This film will feel very foreign to Westerners, but it's for that reason very interesting. The scenery, the music, and the religious rituals of Bhutan Buddhism make it worth watching, even though there's much we don't understand. Sometimes it's difficult to be a perfect person in this world, says the Yangtze. In an interesting twist, the film is narrated in English by the Yangtze himself. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poems during this first week of Epiphany, we have Reginald Heber's Epiphany. Bright and best of the sons of the morning, dawn on our darkness, and lend us thine aid. Star of the east, the horizon adorning, guide where our infant redeemer is laid. Cold on his cradle, the dewdrops are shining. Low lies his head with the beasts of the stall. Angels adore him in slumber reclining maker and monarch and savior of all. Say, shall we yield him in costly devotion, odors of Edom and offerings divine, gems of the mountain and pearls of the ocean, myrrh from the forest or gold from the mine? Vainly we offer each ample oblation, 
vainly with gifts would his favor secure. Richer by far is the heart's adoration. Dearer to God are the prayers of the poor. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 10th, 2016. I'm Debbie Thomas.